Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we report on brutal fighting across Ukraine's battlefronts, discuss the fallout from Italy's election, and analyse Russia's faltering attempts to mobilise hundreds of thousands of its own people. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 26th of September, day 215. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Associate Comment Editor Francis Durnley, and our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes. Can I start with you, Dom? What are the latest updates from the front lines in Ukraine? Well, hi, David. And hi, everybody. Yes, it has been a very busy, busy weekend. Um, so I will go through it. That doesn't mean I intend to minimise any of this, uh, any of this news. Please don't think that. But it, but it, it's just for ease of getting through everything. So there's been a lot of fighting. Well, a lot of fighting has continued over the weekend, as expected. Ukrainian officials saying today that uh, just in the last 24 hours, over 40 towns have been hit by uh, Russian shelling and uh, other other uh, forms of airstrike. Uh, the Ukrainian general staff saying that's at MLRS, multiple launch rocket systems, airstrikes. Um, it included with uh, the Ukrainian Southern Command buildings in Odessa. There's footage online of of the building being hit by. Well, there's footage of one, although the building is on fire already, so it implies others. Um, one Iranian Shahid-136 kamikaze drone. These are the drones that Iran has uh, supposedly been supplying to to Russia. Um, they seem to be about Barakter size, so the, the, the Turkish-made drones that Ukraine have been using. And there is, as I say, there's, there's footage online of them striking, as in physically flying into the uh, Ukrainian Southern Command building in Odessa. Now, whether or not Ukraine's Southern Command is still operating above ground in buildings that are well advertised. We don't know. There's no no news of um, of casualties there, but it uh, it was it's it's happened, and it's the first uh, image that I can remember of seeing these Iranian Iranian drones in use with Russian forces. Um, separately, in the centre, so in 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 uh, around in the Donbass, there's pressure around the town of Liman. That's the next sort of big operationally significant town that. That Ukraine are pressurising at the southern end of the Oskil River. Um, it looks as if Ukraine tried to tried to push to the east and west of the town, which may have drawn in more Russian defences, and that that then allowed a push about ten k's north of there, sort of straight to the east. They are. It looks like Ukraine are trying to push for the town of uh, Svatove. And again, apologies if I've mispronounced that, which seems to be the area that Russia has fallen back to 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 hold the line after they after they collapsed back because of that lightning advance two weeks ago. Um, Savatove seems to be the town that they are now trying to construct any defense in depth around. And uh, in order to pressure that, it looks like Ukraine have fainted towards Liman and then are, are, are pushing north. But I mean, it's, it's, it's very fluid in the area there. So please um uh, don't take everything I say uh, for gospel. However, what's happened there is because the, the, the front line is, is so fluid, and we've spoken at length on this pod about how the Russian Air Force are very, very reluctant to go, well, firstly, out of Russia and Belarusian airspace, to be honest, firing their uh, missiles from there, when they have gone forward to try and employ some sort of close air support role to troops in contact on the on the ground, they've they have been caught out. They have been very vulnerable to Ukrainian ground fire. That seems to be the case here again, partly because they are going forward, partly because it's a very fluid area, and also because the the, the line, the front line, is such a mess around there that they very easily fly at one point they're over russian held areas and then the, and then a few seconds later over areas held by uh, held by ukraine so uh, over the weekend 
uh, there have been reports of 10 Russian aircraft shot down. So five five manned aircraft, four, four jets and a, and a helicopter, KU-52 helicopter, and five other drones. So that was just, I think that was just on Saturday. I've not seen any reports from yesterday. So very fluid, very violent, a um, lot of activity still happening. Just separately, final sort of uh, military update, uh, back to um, Izium, the mass burial site that's been worked on for the last uh, few weeks there by uh, by international investigators. They've uh, they've completed their work, we are told. They've recovered 436 bodies, uh, including some, uh, some of those are children, and uh, some have shown signs of torture. President Zelensky over the weekend said that there have been two more mass burial sites found in the vicinity of Izium, and they are starting to examine those sites uh, this week. But that's the that's it for the military update. I better pause for breath there. Thanks, Dom. Can I just stay with you briefly? Um, the violence that we're seeing across the front lines in Ukraine uh, over the past few days. What does that show us about the Russian forces? Um, Obviously, after the counterattack a couple of weeks ago, there was um, a huge amount of hope about uh, the Ukrainians pushing the Russians back. Does this show us that victory is not a foregone conclusion and shows us that the Russian army across Ukraine still has some fight left in it? Well, um, if I can remember the question, yes, yes, and and partly, I think. So, so yes, victory is never a foregone conclusion. Yes, there's still a hell of a lot of fight left in Russia, uh, in the Russian forces, Um because we think so in the centre, in the Donbass area, we think there are 17 artillery groups, each Russian artillery groups, each artillery group being two divisions and each division having uh, 32 artillery pieces. So that should be the orbit on day, day one. So um, over 1,200. Please correct me if I got the decimal point in the wrong place. But, you know, at start point, there should be over 1,200 artillery pieces in that area alone. Now that's that's at the start line. Seven months ago, um, there will be they've massively been worn down since then. But still, an, an enormous amount of artillery left. And and as we know, Russia is a very artillery led force. That's what that's how they they doctrinally work. Pound in the the long range artillery and then send the tanks and the infantry and afterwards to to plant a flag on the rubble. So there's still a huge amount of force there. Now. Ukraine have have cut off the a lot of the supply lines from the north, particularly from from the Belgorod region of Russia, down directly down south, the, the quickest route south into the Donbass. We also know Russia is very rail heavy; they prefer to move their logistics by rail rather than um, rather than road. So a lot of the artillery ammunition is coming in by rail, which again has been cut off to great great to great effect or to, in great numbers. Now that partly what w- enabled the great push through in two, two weeks ago by Ukraine simply because Russia had been so worn down but it's all relative and there's a there's a huge amount of military capability still left there uh, for Russia and by military capability I don't mean combined arms Premier League you know properly well thought through operational art I just mean mass mainly for Russia that's what they that's what they're bringing to this party um, but it, it mass uh, is is effective um Hope you say should should we hope that, that that they will crumble? Well, you know I've said it before. Former commanding officer of mine said, if the word hope enters your plan anywhere, then you haven't planned enough. Um, and I think that's it. So hope we should hope as much as we like. We've got to keep hope alive, but that that doesn't come anywhere near. You leave hope at the door when you start planning for for a military success. So no, there's there's a, a long way to go here, and Russia is still a very very um, militarily capable force, albeit a very blunt blunt instrument. Well, thanks very much for that, Dom. Can we move on and talk a little bit more about uh, nuclear weapons? It's come up a lot in the last few months. Um, Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, has said that Vladimir Putin's uh, nuclear threat, quote, could be a reality. Uh, The US have said that Russia will face catastrophic consequences. That's a quote, if it deploys nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Um, Francis, can you talk us through uh, these? uh, Can you talk us through what's happening and what it might mean for the war? Thanks, David, and good afternoon, everyone. Yes, so there's been some interesting remarks by Jake Sullivan, who is a US national security advisor, who on Sunday night said that the US had, and I quote here, communicated directly, privately to the Russians at very high levels that if Russia crosses this line, there will be catastrophic consequences for Russia. The United States will respond decisively. So, What is the importance of this? Well, I think we can say it's an interesting intervention, given the timing of the UN 
summit that we were talking about at length last week. I think it shows that they are taking Putin's nuclear threat seriously. And I think it's worth contextualise this in the broader discussion that we've had on this podcast in the past, which is about this question of, of strategic ambiguity or lack thereof. If there had been, I think, a more robust and clearer view put forward by the West as to what would happen if Ukraine was invaded, we could well have avoided the war. So what we're now trying to avoid doing, I think, is making a similar mistake on nuclear weapons, making it evident that if Putin goes that in that direction, that there will be very, very severe ramifications for him. And I think reading between the lines of what's being said here, it would be suggestive of some kind of, well, retaliatory strike, perhaps that's going too far, but some, some extremely severe, whatever it, would, whatever it would be. Now, you could say that they're not necessarily... Uh, wouldn't exactly echo um, the, the sort of the nuclear <laughs> nuclear option, but nonetheless, these are strong words, and I don't think should should be underestimated. Now, I think we have to accept, as we were talking about last week, Putin is under real threat now. He's cornered, and it's important to remember that in Russian culture there is this idea of. Russia perpetually being under a kind of existential threat from the West. Of course, it's suffered major invasions in its past three, um, most significantly 1812, obviously the First World War and in the Second World War. So this idea of, of them potentially being completely destroyed is is not alien to them as it maybe feels in large parts of western europe and in the united states so i think we're right to be making it clear what the consequences would be if putin were to do that and were serious as i believe you know is is conceivable at least as i say given the cultural mentality prevalent in russia in the 20th century the other side to this of course is as well that that these kind of threats may actually increase the chances of Putin being brought down. In the West, we tend to oversimplify how we imagine nuclear weapons operating. It's not as simple as him just pressing a big red button. Assuming, and this is a big assumption, that Putin even was able to, 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 to use any of the nuclear weapons that, are, that the Russia has, and that, as I say, is highly contestable given the conditions of which they are stored and, and everything else. But assuming he were able to, that would need to be signed off by numerous generals and figures across Russia. And now that America is making it very clear how devastating the consequences of such a strike would be, you've got to ask the question, is this message is going to them, how, are you really willing to sacrifice your life as would be suggestive, as I say, of this, for Putin. I, I think that the chances are that for many of these individuals, that will not necessarily be the case. Now, what would particularly be interesting is if China weighed in and make it clear that they don't support Russia's use of these weapons either. And that might be enough to tip over some of these generals over the edge into launching some kind of coup, which would only underline, I think, the importance of the international community keeping up the pressure as they have been. So as I say, not, that's not a prediction, but that is some of the calculations, I think, that will be going on at very high levels within the Western world. And as I say, I don't think we should necessarily see this um, statement being made just for Putin's benefit. It's being made for those who are around him. And making it clear that whatever Putin is trying to do will only end in devastating consequences for the for the country as a whole. Thanks, Francis. Uh, Dom, I know you have quite a few thoughts on this. Would you like to come in? Yeah, it it is such a a complex area. We need to be really careful about how we think about it, let alone what we think about it. So just we just need to um, to, to bear that in mind as we as we wade through this, which is going to be a feature now. Well, certainly for this war and. Um, and continuing war. So so let's have a think about this. So Russia is framing this, the war in Ukraine, as them against everyone else. It's fortress Russia. It's Russia against the West, against NATO, against Nazis, against NAFO, against everybody. OK, so any response from from the West in, in response to, uh, well, anything, any conventional act by Russia and now and we're now talking about nuclear. So any response from the West is seen in that 
in that guise. So if um, NATO and the US went up, went up to a high alert, if there was a, a massive increase in supply to Ukraine, F-16s, ATACMs, um, some kind of Iron Dome over Kiev, Odessa, all this sort of stuff, any kind of response even if it's not not against Russia, would be seen, would be played by Russia as, ah, I told you so, it's them against us. So we've, we're almost not going to be able to, to win that one. We almost can't combat that one because Russia will frame everything in terms of, that, see, I told you, I told you domestic population, they're all against us. So there's almost nothing we can do about that. However, we, we do have to bear that one, that one in mind. The second thing to, to to think of, and I can't take credit for this. This came from Shashank Joshi, colleague and friend of mine at the Economist. He tweeted this morning. He said that the, the purpose of any nuclear strike, be it to then move into, as he says, it negotiations through shock or any kind of attempt to seek a, a military gain on the battlefield, but the purpose of any strike would endure the day after any retaliation. So it's not as if we just we just stand there toe to toe and. Do to the sort of Queensbury rules that you you clip me around the ear, I punch you in the face, and then we we sort of move on. The purpose of that strike will still be there, so you've got to plan for that. Even whilst you're planning for some kind of retaliation, you've got to think about, as in you know the West. If the West thinks about a retaliation, we've also got to think about. Well, it's very unlikely to completely remove those aims that Russia had in the first place for for taking that strike. And then the third thing is you've got to got to think about. Well, if you want to try how and where. So, again, Russia talks about this as a global war, but but really sees it as a as a local conflict. So it keeps it in Ukraine. Um, Any we're talking about a nuclear strike. I imagine that would be in the theater of operations of Ukraine. It wouldn't be against some I doubt extremely doubtful it would be against some other other target in a different theater. And I think that's because they, they would not want to. They want to try and try and keep this contained. So, if you respond in kind, if if the West were to respond in kind, in the theatre of operations of Ukraine, then that that not only could be could give credence to an escalation of the war, it would also reinforce that fortress Russia view. So, what do you do? So, if you then try and break that that model and try and um, try and hit back in a in a completely different geographic and conceptual way so would the would the west um take down five russian satellites which would okay have a military effect but it also muck around with their their telecoms their banking system all the rest of it it'd be a, a proper up yours to russia to say if you want to come and mess with us boys we, we, we'll we'll do this somewhere completely different that you, that you won't expect so you know div- separating it from the war in ukraine would there be a military strike against the Russian forces in Moldova or Georgia or the Far East, the, the, the naval fleet in Vladivostok, for example? Would there be something like that that's totally separate from Ukraine, saying we will strike you at a time and a place and in a, in a, in a conceptual sphere, ugh, awful term, apologies, but in a way of our choosing? Would that, would that then keep Russia guessing about they just don't know, they've got no calibration for this, so one tactical nuclear strike equals that from the West? They just wouldn't have a way of answering it. Or would that in itself be hugely expansionist and escalatory because you're opening up whole new spheres of conflict, whole new areas of, of the fight? Uh, so it's, it's an extremely difficult um, gauge, an extremely difficult response for Western policymakers to have to, to deal with. And I'm not saying I've, I've got any, any you know, clever answers here. Um, I, I just think I've, we've got to be cognizant of all these, all these pressures. If any kind of response stayed in the, in the conventional sphere, so if it was decided that the unit that fired the missile, for example, which is probably going to be in the Russian, um, Russian homeland, it's not going to be in the Russian-held areas of Ukraine, I would suggest. But if it was decided to strike that specific unit or to give... Ukraine the means of striking that specific unit and and Russia would say well you know you've given them the means let's say it's ATACMs you've given them the intelligence as well you're you're in the fight so there's there's no blurring the lines there i mean is that is that a conventional if that's a conventional response would that merit russia hitting back in a in a conventional way are we then into an attack on nato article 5 territory and whilst we might you might sit down and try and wargame this um on a on a piece of paper or you know on a you know in a, bra- in a planning cell somewhere, uh, it is very, very hard to to judge what happens next. Once you start escalating, let's say Russia 
again, tried to divorce it from the theater of Ukraine, hit a, um, a UN, sorry, a, a U.S. vessel, ship, somewhere completely around, around the world. Loss of life, U.S. loss of life or NATO loss of life. Imagine the, 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 the blood boiling in NATO headquarters and in, and in governments and corridors of power around the world. It's so it's very difficult to, to try and contain that escalatory impulse. So I'm just suggesting there's all different ways of thinking about this, whether or not you keep it geographically and conceptually linked to the war in Ukraine with all the fear, all the all the problems that brings in, or do you divorce it completely from the theatre, the geography of Ukraine and the and the conceptual means of striking, i.e. heavy metal. But again, there's other other things to think about there. So I'm afraid I've just, just lobbed up a, lo- a load of questions and, and no real answers. Um, but yeah, you know, all discussion points that we, we need to need to try and unpack over the next next few months. No, thank you very much for that, Dom. I think that gave us a good uh, insight into the kind of frameworks that Western leaders, uh, policymakers, and people in the military and NATO will be will be thinking about. So thanks for that. Um, uh, Francis and Dom. On Friday, we talked a lot about the Italian election that was um, took place yesterday on Sunday. Um, and we talked a little bit about what it might mean for the EU and for Ukraine. Uh, we have a result. Francis Adonley, can you come in and just talk to us a little bit about the election? And then we've got uh, Joe Barnes, our Brussels correspondent, to give us a sense of how the EU has reacted. Thanks, David. Yes. So, as you say, we spoke about this at length last week um, with Nick Squires, who's our correspondent in Rome. Um, and we now have a result in that election. So, as predicted, Giorgio Maloney, the uh, head of the Brothers of Italy party, uh, it will lead an alliance of right-wing parties in winning about 43% of the vote. That's in comparison to the centre-left, which took around 26%, I think. Um, and so, as has often, you know, been commented on already, uh, the, this is probably the, the furthest right-wing government that Italy has had since Mussolini. Uh, in terms of some of its more populist policies, although, and, and I should say that indeed that's the reaction in large parts of, of Europe, which I know that Joe will want to no doubt speak about. Um, so in terms of its relevance to Ukraine, I think the first thing to say is that actually this may not be the game changer that many initially feared. Yes, she is a supporter of Viktor Orban in Hungary and of uh, Marine Le Pen in France. But her policy on Ukraine is actually, and China, is very robust and echoes the line that is more common in Western European governments generally, the supporting Ukraine in its fight against Russia. Indeed, she sees Russia and China as the great existential threat for Western Europe. So in that sense, this is not going to be the the sort of far right sort of Putin apologists that some fit. However, it is worth saying that her coalition partners particularly uh, Berlusconi, who I'm sure will be familiar to to many listeners in Europe, a rather colourful character. I think he's 85 now, um, former um, head of Italy and um, uh, used to get in trouble for all sorts of um, nefarious activities, not least bunga punga parties. But um, anyway, I digress. Um, He is more of what you would say as a Putin apologist in his remarks on the past, as are other coalition partners like Salvini. So the question mark is, and we don't yet know the answer to this, is the extent to which she will become uh, uh, forced as perhaps the energy crisis is exacerbated and as ever a new leader does come under political pressure in difficult times, particularly economically, whether she will have to start giving in to pressure from her coalition partners to soften her starts on Russia and Ukraine. As I say, there's no initial sign that that will be the case. But as I say, realpolitik may well kick in and practical politics if things become difficult in the months and years ahead. It's also worth bearing in mind, of course, as well, that Italy has is known for having very unstable governments, which means that they are quite likely to uh, implode uh, and, and, and people to pull out of them. So this is a very real threat. But as I say, the, that is not yet by any means guaranteed, but it's just a sort of a pressure point that I think we should be sensitive to. The broader point, and I say it'd be really interesting to hear Joe's take on this, is what this actually means for the, for, for the solidarity of the European Union more broadly. As I say, on Ukraine, I think they're broadly in alignment, but 
there is a question mark, I think, about what this means for, for the solidarity of the European project philosophically, because a big part of, of her campaign in Italy has been to attack the European Union, attack its views on, uh, on, on freedom of movement, for instance, on immigration, but also on meddling in the domestic affairs of European countries. Um, Ursula von der Leyen sent a very, well, very thinly veiled threat, I think it's fair to say, to the to the electorate of, of Italy not to vote for um, for Bologna. And so, you know, you can read into that what you will, um, that they have responded with, with this election of her. Uh, and so there is a real question mark here that one of the founding members of the European Union is now electing a government which is extremely critical and populist of the European project and the way it currently operates and its sort of bureaucracy and and overreaching into areas that make it feel uncomfortable. And I think, as I say, we have to ask the question about what that could mean in what is inevitably going to be a very, very challenging few months for the European Union, not least because of the economic consequences of the war, but also the energy consequences, as I've talked about at length in the past. So as I say, I'm not making any predictions here. Quite often, leaders will come in and make all sorts of table-banging promises about what they're going to do um, and how they're going to battle bureaucrats in Brussels, and then it all comes to naught. At the end of the day, the Italian government is effectively being financed by the European Union, so that will make things tricky. But nonetheless, there is a trend here that countries in Europe, Sweden a couple of weeks ago, now Italy, are, are tending to lean towards more populist anti-Brussels governments and that will have a destabilizing impact in, in, in the long term and ones that could well have ramifications on the war in Ukraine. So I'll stop there and let Joe <laughs> come in and give his no doubt far more erudite analysis. Joe Barnes, the stage is yours. Hello folks and uh, thank you for having me. No, Francis, that was a, a superb roundup of where we're at. Um, so what I, what I, there's a few things I'd say. On, on Ukraine, Georgia Maloney on February the 8th, I believe it was, just before Russia went into Ukraine, she said we need to have secular peace with Russia. But it seems to me that Biden uses foreign policy to cover up the problems he has at home. And she then went on to say Europe, uh, in quotes, must play a role for peace and have a third party for Ukraine. I'm against sanctions, not because I'm a friend of Putin, whom I've never seen, but our interest is not to push Russia towards China. So I think when it comes to... Uh, what side of the mask she puts herself on. She would probably be a bigger China hawk than she is a Russia hawk. Um, but that was actually quite a stance that was in Italy to start with. The, the government of Mario Draghi, uh, in the first days of the conflict, wanted to act as an, an honest broker to have a link with Putin, similarly to what Emmanuel Macron of France had done. Um, but I remember there was a big story that we covered, uh, I think it was on the 25th or the 26th, but literally... Uh, the days after the war when the EU was first drafting up its first round of sanctions against um, the Russian government and the Russian economy. And we had a story that basically said the Italians had worked to secure a carve-out to ensure they could carry on selling luxury goods in Russia. Um, we It was on the website, it led the blog. Um, I, I then put it on Twitter and it went rather viral. I remember having quite an amusing uh, conversation with uh, Mario Draghi's then press secretary. And I was just like saying... You say you're being hardline on on Russia, but you're not. You're asking for these carve-outs. So I think that was a... And then they eventually they U-turned and became one of the... Not a sanction hawk like the Poles or the Bolts, but they, they began pushing for harder sanctions. So I think it's a... Italy started off on a soft front and have moved up through the gears to get to one the point where they are kind of a, a tougher actor on Russia. So what we could see is we could see them backsliding again and becoming more problematic, uh, like the Hungarians... Um, and like other economies like Germany, who will look to put their economy first rather than target Russia and do a good deed and punish Russia on behalf on behalf of Ukraine. Um, so that's one kind of thing I would note uh, going forward is what we'd have to look at is where will they sit on the sanctions pyramid? Will they be up the top with the, the Hawks? Probably not. They'll probably be sitting somewhere in between Hungary, uh, which says... We don't want any sanctions on Russia and in between Germany um, that's been slightly more cautious. And then I think the other thing to note is 
the way that this is going to create a kind of division in the power axis around Brussels and how decision making is carried out. Under Mario Draghi, who was a respected figure, he was the former kind of president of the European Central Bank and kind of is credited for helping um, move the euro currency, the eurozone, through our recent financial turmoils uh, before before now. Um, so he's a highly respected figure. And between him, France and Germany, there was little, if they came to an agreement, they were basically formed a powerhouse. But now Italy is going to align itself with the Hungarians, with the Poles, who have repeatedly clashed with the EU over kind of democratic values, over gay rights, um, and kind of other things like that. What what we would consider Western European ideals, uh, the Hungary and Poland don't quite agree with them, and they will portray themselves more as conservative family values that we don't want to follow Brussels bureaucrats on. But we've actually seen in in the kind of the the wake of Maloney and her right-wing coalition winning the election, um, Didier Reinders, who's a former kind of Belgian foreign minister, uh, but he's now um, the European Commissioner for Justice, and he he said that uh, Maloney's victory, uh, not for the first time, is that we risk confronting governments formed with far-right or far-left parties. And he said the EU would react to the actions of the new government, and we have the instruments at our disposal. Um, and it alludes to past actions the EU have taken when it comes to economic reforms in Greece, Spain, Italy, uh, in terms of like the Troika uh, during the financial crisis and kind of EU legal kind of battles it's had with Poland and Hungary. And this was something that Ursula von der Leyen made a point in. She was speaking in New York at a university on last Sunday on the fringe of the UN General Assembly. And she basically said, look, we have the tools to keep bad actors within the European to heal. And I think what they are referring to is the fact that Italy is entitled to a 200 billion euro chunk of the EU's coronavirus recovery fund. And dispersal of that cash basically relies on having a plan, a spending plan, um, covered and signed off by the European Commission. So she is basically going to hold Italy hostage and hold that money hostage and unless kind of maloney uh salvini berlusconi and these kind of right-wing parties uh are allowed to like have access to this money they will then be expected to follow the brussels system so that that's one of the i think the most powerful tools but i, I don't think we should be completely shocked i don't think maloney while she's a party brothers of italy were born out of kind of a fascist movement she's the most right-wing politician to take power since Mussolini I don't think that she will throw her values uh, out there and commit to them completely and then throw 200 billion euros down down the drain because that's what's at stake at the moment and I'll, I'll stop there well thanks very much for that Joe that was incredibly comprehensive I've just got one question I think before we can move away from Italy and talk about mobilization in Russia um from what you're saying, it seems to me that aside from potentially backsliding over things like sanctions uh, and allying itself more with the Hungaries of, of the EU than the, than the Bolts and the Poles, is one potential issue that um, that dealing with Italy and Italy's new politics could just distract the EU from, from Ukraine? Is, is, can we see that as a pot potential outcome? Uh, yeah, and I, I, I think for sure. So the EU spends a lot of its bandwidth kind of bringing Hungary and Poland to heel, and it's been launching various kind of legal challenges it's trying to uh it's the commission's been drawing up um plans to basically withdraw uh, a lot of hungary's budget because it believes that uh hungary's procurement system is essentially corrupt and the money um that is given to it from the european coffers uh, goes to basically funding Viktor orban the hungarian prime minister and his kind of pals um so and but what it will also do is it will give the Poles and the Hungarians another beating stick. So uh, Matthias Morawiecki, the Polish Prime Minister, reacted to the comments from on von der Leyen and from Didier Reinders, and basically said, "Like, is this the, is this the Europe we want? Is is it a Europe that we where bureaucrats in Brussels dictate what government should be, and that that is not rule of law, that is diktat? So actually, it's going to a bit will exasperate." Uh, already strained relations 
across the EU. So it, no, it will mean the EU isn't as harmonious as it was before. Um, and we've got to remember Italy is a huge economy in terms of in terms of scale. It's got huge amounts of voters. So actually, when it comes to the some of the EU's kind of voting systems, it will have a huge say over what what happens in in the EU. So that both sides will have to work to manage the relationship carefully to so to ensure Rome gets its 200 billion euros, uh, but also in not to ongoing tensions and basically embolden the kind of Eurosceptic movement who none of them want to uh, want to leave the EU anymore. They're not seen as like the kind of Brexiteer style, Nigel Farage's uh, vote leave, uh, leave.eu kind of campaigns uh, within the heart of their government. They are basically looking to kind of mould the EU uh, in their own in their own fashion and this this will help their cause well thank you uh very much for that joe that's hugely appreciated for giving us that in-depth understanding of of what's happening in italy and the impacts it might have on the eu um i think we should talk about uh now mobilization it was a huge topic uh, last week on the pod actually just after I, w- I was not on so i've been listening to everything you, you guys have been saying um there's been a lot of movement in terms of mobilization and the uh, troops the conscripts the russian federation is attempting to call up across its territories dom and francis what's been happening so just as a, a recap, this was the, the in quotes, partial mobilisation announced by Putin last week. The initial numbers were 300,000, although there seems nothing really set in stone to suggest that is going to be the final figure. Um, there's been many reports that the, that the small print of the actual legislation to bring this in has allowed for, I think, almost virtually un, unlimited, but did mention, I think, 1.2 million. So there's talk of four waves of 300,000. But essentially... It, it is whatever they want. There were various promises offered that there would only be those for those with uh, former military service, and that students would would not be expected to uh, to to um, be drafted in. Equally, those involved in the military industrial complex, so arms companies and what and what have you. I mean, all all of that seems seems to be uh, somewhat being being smudged. I, I'm unclear. I, I don't want to be too too equivocal because. Um, too unequivocal because reports are sketchy coming out of Russia. But I mean, there's a lot of social media over the weekend and in the last few days about about this. And there's uh, there have been there's footage of um, mobilisation, particularly in the poorer regions of Russia and those further away from the major cities, particularly Moscow. And there there have been there's been footage of uh, protests, many from women in, in Dagestan actually refusing to allow. Um, their people to, to be taken and um, there's also uh, the reports over the weekend that the, the neighbor, countries neighboring Russia particularly the Baltic states have hardened their position on the number of people that they would allow to come over the number of tourist visas they would issue um, worth or not avoiding a conscripted service in Russian military to go and serve in Ukraine is, is grounds for seeking asylum so the, all these messages are, are coming out but we think that um, that there were seventeen thousand across the, the border to Finland over the weekend. That's that was said that that was up eighty percent on the week before. Um, Finland on Friday said it was going to quote significantly restrict the number of Russian quote tourists, um, and uh, said that the issuing of visas would cause quote serious damage to Finland's international position. So it, we're not sure exactly what what's happening and in what numbers, but it's quite clear that in large sections of society, this is not gone down particularly well there's other there's other footage of, of people turning up being held in in pretty poor conditions and other people turning up drunk and what have you and it's very easy to laugh at this because we are oh, look that, that, that's not going to be uh, they're not going to be at all militarily effective and they they probably won't but i mean they are if they get the numbers that they're after that will have that will have an effect um but we should also think about what this is doing for for the for the military force themselves so how how are they going to train these people how are they going to accommodate them how are they going to get them into ukraine um there was footage over over the weekend of a, a draft a commissioner as in someone someone signing people up to the draft in the Irkutsk region that's over by mongolia so about three thousand k's east of moscow who was shot by by one of the people who had been who had been pulled in um moldova has said it, it could revoke the citizenship of any nationals any dual nationals and there are 200 dual nationals in moldova who then go to fight for russia so it, it is still early days in this. I think it's it's somewhat fanciful to to think that this will immediately translate into mass public protest. And oh, Putin's finished. How could he do this? Um, we we should be very very cautious about about extrapolating that that far. But um, what is 
what is beyond doubt is that it would take an, an, an inordinate amount of time to turn these kind of numbers into a, co- a competent and coherent fighting force. And bearing in mind that the Russian army that turned up on day one or day one of this phase on February the 24th was not a competent and coherent fighting force. I find it, it very, very difficult to, to think that these this additional um, per, these additional personnel would do would do anything um, anything like that. Uh, however, that that does not mean that they can't. There's not a, an awful lot of, of, of pain, grief, and heartache still to come if this if this amount of people are are going to be pushed into uh, on both sides. I mean, are going to be pushed into the fight. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom. Francis, I know you want to come in briefly on that, and then we'd like to talk a little bit more about referenda, because I know Joe's got some interesting points on that. Yes, just very briefly, I just wanted to point listeners to a piece uh, that was in the Sunday edition of, uh, of of the paper, but is also available online by Dr. Jade McGlynn, who's written for us several times in the past. And just to underline the points that Dom was making there, she really, I think, very well summarises how, in many ways, this mobilisation can play against Putin because of it exacerbating these tensions, not only within Russia, but particularly on some of these satellite states. So I just wanted to point listeners to that. The other thing I think that's just worth underlining is I've been doing some reading about this and seeing the kind of reactions that uh, from, from people within Uh, within Russia and particularly on social media. Now, you can't necessarily see these as indicative of the general mood. But what you do see in the worst instances is just a catalogue of cock-ups and bureaucratic bungling in terms of people being conscripted, messages of people uh, about people who have been called up who died 20 years ago, stories of people who who are elderly being called up. Um, Dom alluded to last week stories that we've heard of people being given guns that are rusty and from about 40, 50 years old. I mean, if these are true, and I say it is an if at this stage, then this signal of mobilisation is actually destined for to, to make the challenge of fighting this war even more difficult because it, it, not only are you trying to, to fight a war but you're having to fix all of this litany of problems that you've, you've brought on yourself so as I say too early to say whether that's definitively the case in all instances but if it's true that what we've been seeing is that this conscription is terribly handled and is indicative of a system that is effectively rotten uh, in terms of actually calling soldiers up and a fighting machine that, as we've seen, is nowhere near as strong as we were led to believe, then I think that that will also have big ramifications in, in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you very much for that, Francis, and thank you, Dom. Um, we want to talk a little bit about referenda, the, 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 the sham referenda that Russia is running in, in the south. Um, Francis and Joe, can you talk us through what's happening and what are, what are some of the Ukrainians saying that you've been speaking to? Well, I'll just very briefly cover the bare bones of the story. As I say, the, the, the significance of these sham referenda, and that is exactly what they are, is first it sends a very clear message to the world, I think, of anybody who's watching this, is just the, the shocking uh, duplicity of the, uh, the Russian regime uh, and, and how it's uh, engaging in Ukraine, because the footage we've been seeing is, is just appalling instances of people being uh, led into the voting booths being uh, and asking where they have to vote you know and there being no private booths and things like this uh, so there's there's that angle of it on, on what's occurring but clearly Putin's intention remains that uh, he will try and then claim that this territory now belongs to Russia as a consequence of the sham referenda and thus as a consequence would be justified to use nuclear weapons uh, if that territory was then continu- in, invaded further by Ukraine that is the battlefield doctrine is that once Russian territory is itself threatened, then it is justified to use these words. So that's the intention. But as I say, the voting in referendums has continued. It's now ended its fourth day. Some of them are happening online. Some of them are happening uh, in person. I watched uh, one some footage of Russian-backed officials carrying ballot boxes from door to door, being accompanied by security officials. And another footage, piece of footage of, of a lady going around with a megaphone, knocking on people's doors and uh, and calling them out to vote in these uh, in these territories but the remarkable thing 
is actually the from what we understand that the the number of brave people who are in these territories who are refusing to go out to vote they think that the turnout may be as low as 20 percent and considering the fact that that of that 20 percent many of them may well be forced to go to the ballot ballot boxes that is quite extraordinary i think um so as i say i don't want us to, to read too much into these sham referendums because it's exactly what uh, what putin wants after all but i think it's important just to, to flag and to offer an update about what has been going on and what will no doubt be significant once the uh, verdicts are, are, are announced. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis. Uh, Joe or Dom, who would like to come in on that? Well, I, I'll just mention that um, we should note that Serbia has said it will not recognise the poll results, the referendum results. Now, Serbia is a long-time ally of, of Russia, so this is particularly embarrassing. They're taking that position, of course, because of their um, their relationship with Kosovo and their refusal to their refusal to um, accept that borders can be can be uh, changed in this way and their issues over sovereignty. Like I say, it's all around Kosovo. Um, Joe, I think, is, is quite right. He's, he's just messaged me and said that Kazakhstan is the same. Uh, Joe, if you want to come in afterwards and mention about that, because I've not seen that. But again, these are historically very close allies to to Russia, taking this very public stance, I think, is, is notable. Um, I should say I've got a, a, you know, t- a tongue-in-cheek uh, Twitter poll running at the moment, another day running, if you want to take part in this, about, about what the results will be, the sort of average across all four. Um, I've, said, I've said, would it be 26%, this is in fa- average, in favour of, of becoming part of Russia, 26%, 52%, 76%, or 94%. And at the moment, it's uh, 3% are going for, for the low figure of, of 26%, which somebody suggested to me, what if Putin's engineering this such that Zaporizhia and um, Kurzon Oblast's vote to stay with Ukraine, he might then say, oh, fair enough, I'm going to recognise democracy as long as you recognise Luhansk and Donetsk, now part of Russia, and I'll pull my forces back. I, I don't think that's going to happen, but it was a very interesting comment nonetheless. Um, on my poll, 4% said that it would only be it would be 52% in favour of, of joining Russia. Um, 14, quite a big number, 14% said uh, said three quarters would vote to join Russia, but the vast majority, 79% saying that, that the results would be the, the completely ridiculous 94%. I have to say, I think I'm probably in that last cohort, but um, it's interesting how the numbers have changed. That, I'm running that for, ne- for the next day. If you want to take part, have a look at uh, have a look look at my Twitter feed. You'll, you'll see it on there and, um, and please vote. But uh, Joe, I think you've probably got a, a comment about Kazakhstan. Yeah, so um, coming on to the Kazakh, the Kazakhs, they've uh, again um, joined this international coalition promising not to acknowledge and accept the results of the referendums. And we know that Vladimir Putin isn't a fan of losing elections and has a great kind of history of coming uh, top of the polls. So we can, I think, already predict the outcome of all of these election or referendum, sham referendum results. Uh, but it's just another, it's another kind of one of Russia's close uh, and geographical allies um that's basically said we don't think you should be doing this um but then i think so in our page one story today which we led on uh jake sullivan the u.s national security advisor going on uh the nuclear warnings which you covered earlier on but um as part of that piece i spoke to ivan fedorov who is the mayor of Melitopol, which is a a town in the southern region um at the beginning of the war he was one of the first uh ukrainian elected officials to be kidnapped by russian forces and he was held in captivity for a while and eventually let out as some sort of prisoner swap in the early early days. I've been fortunate enough to meet him in Brussels. He's a kind of a lovely chap. Um and we've stayed in touch with his with his team and um but I had a chat chat with him while he was uh, driving somewhere through Ukraine yesterday for this story. And he said actually, um, despite these kind of images that we've seen um of kind of Russian installed election uh referendum officials going door to door um with armed men forcing people to vote or giving handing out ballot papers he said actually um of the residents of Melitopol, and we believe there is around maybe just uh short of sixty thousand people that still reside there it had a pre-war population of about 150 thousand he said about only one in five 20 percent of people have actually come out to vote in this uh poll in this referendum the fake referendum that he calls it um and he said actually of those people that had voted 90 percent of them had voted no um and this is then 
shown up in separate comments about the kind of the lack of participation and kind of the act of defiance when people have basically been threatened with their families massacred if they didn't take part and if they didn't vote yes. In the Herson region, which had a pre-war population of about a million, a roughly installed official this morning came out and said that turnout had been around 50% or equivalent to 25,000 votes. We know that there are far more Ukrainians uh, living in that in that region than what the Russians are saying. Um, so actually, what we're seeing is, we've seen where there's been these kind of partisan attacks where people have actually taken kind of military and violent steps to knock out collaborators. There are now less violent and more kind of democratic ways of saying, no, we don't want you here, please leave. And then the other interesting comment I got, and I looked further into this, um, that Mr. Fedorov said that the routes, uh, evacuation routes, sorry, out of Militiapol had been closed by the Russian forces, the occupiers there. Um, the normal routes that take you to Ukrainian-held areas of Zaporizhia. And he said they'd been closed, and the only route that now remained open was one towards uh, Russian Crimea. And that if you decided to take that route you would be forced through a filtration camp where we know uh, that Russians have used um, violent kind of torture, interrogation, basically test people's loyalties. Um, and he also, the, I think the key point he made was that military-aged men, so he described them between 18 and 35, had been blocked from leaving altogether. They weren't even allowed to go and take this Crimea route. And then we heard from Sergei Adey, who is the Ukrainian uh, elected official, the governor of the Luhansk region in the Donbass. And he both said, they both said that the door to door attempts to coerce and force people out to vote were also being used as a kind of information gathering by the Russian forces, the occupying collaborators, um, to basically find out how many military aid men are in kind of these occupied regions. So eventually, when they miraculously declare they want to become part of the Russian Federation, that the Russians have a pool of Ukrainian fighters that they can forcibly draft up into their into their armed forces. And that's um, something that we've seen basically across all four kind of regions and areas where these jam referendums are being held. And these two Ukrainian installed officials have basically come out and said, we know the Russians are failing. Their mobilization is now failing. Uh, so this is now another attempt to bolster their battle-stricken forces in Ukraine by basically turning Ukrainians on Ukrainians. And God knows what would happen in that situation. It's, it's one that I can't even fathom. I'm sure a lot of people can't fathom. But that's a brutality that, that people and officials on the ground are speaking of. And I'll, I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, Joe, Dom and Francis. I think, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time today. So can I just ask you all briefly for your final thoughts? What should our listeners uh, be thinking of and looking to over the days ahead? Well, for me, I think we've got to keep an eye on the on the, the referendum issue here. It's been going for, what's four, four days now, so should be should be wrapping up. I mean, for as much as we've, we've said we think it's, it's all just a complete whitewash, um, it, it's, the, it's the what comes next. And not only is, is I think that worth keeping an eye on but also just just have a look at what's going on at the moment two two big issues right now the nuclear issue and the referendum issue we are looking to russia to 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 dictate what comes next and that concerns me a little bit um because it means that all the momentum is is with them they they are driving this thing at the moment russia we are reacting to them we're waiting to see what they're going to say or do about the nuclear issue we're waiting to see what they're going to do after the referendum issue now as they are losing on the battlefield so they seek to um, push their advantage in in another area or try their luck in in another area so they've turned to the politics they've turned to the the old boogeyman that then they know presses our buttons in the west of the nuclear issue and i just think we should be be aware of what's happening here, that we are ceding some of the initiative and this momentum to Russia. I'm not saying there's an awful lot we can do about it, but I think we should just be aware of what's happening and and do some of the intellectual horse, get, put the intellectual horsepower in so that we, we have an answer and we can drive the debate on nuclear and in particular the, the, what happens with, with the referendum and they then claim, ah, oh, this is all, all part of Russia. So more an observation than any kind of any sort of news there really but i'm just i'm just aware that the the, the initiative and momentum is shifting in russia's favor right now
Well, thank you, Dom. Francis, would you like to go next? Thanks, David. I would just echo what Dom was saying there. I think that's a really important point, and it's why last week it touched on the idea of whether there was some way to try and disrupt these referenda because of just that very point, which is that it, it means that the momentum and all eyes are what happens with those. And one wonders whether that is necessarily the wisest course after what has been obviously a disaster for Russia in so many respects in recent weeks. But for my final thought, I spoke last week about the conundrum of countries in Europe letting in Russians fleeing conscription or soldiers who are currently fighting in Ukraine. As I said, then some countries, Estonia, most of the Baltic states are not going to allow any Russians fleeing in They're citing security reasons for that. Germany, on the other hand, is saying that it will. Um, So you can see there's a slight tension there within Europe. But I was very struck by the remarks by President Zelensky over the weekend, who has said, and he spoke and said this in German on one of his, sorry, not in German, in Russian on one of his uh, evening speeches. He said that Russian soldiers who surrender to Ukraine will be treated in a, quote, civilized manner. And he said that the deserters were, uh, would be treated in line with international conventions and they would not be returned to what Russia if they were afraid of repercussions. So he has done exactly what we thought might be the case, uh, which we posited last week, which is that some countries will say no uh, to conscripts leaving Russia, probably as much for security, but also for this reason that it helps the pressure within Russia continue to build and not have this relief valve that I spoke about last week. Um, But also it, um, uh, it, the, the, you have this approach now by by Ukraine, which is saying that actually the soldiers who are fighting uh, or could be fighting will be allowed to uh, to be treated will be treated well and will not have uh, be, be threatened with being sent back to Russia. Now, the reason why this is it, it will work, I think, very well is that we saw early on in the conflict that those who didn't want to be there were willing to turn themselves over to the Ukrainians because they knew they would be better looked after than by some of their officers in the Russian army. Now, with the war going in the direction that it is, I think there's a justification to think that things could uh, this could precipitate if Ukraine really holds its word here. Um, this could precipitate quite sizable desertions if the pressure continues to go in the direction that it has been. So I think it's a very smart move by Zelensky, and it's one that we thought might be the case last week in finding this middle ground between allowing tension to build in Russia, but also not blocking Russian soldiers from uh, from leaving the the the. Uh, leaving the front line and potentially fleeing in large numbers. So I just wanted to point attention to that and say that I think this is a very wise move from Zelensky. Well, thank you, Francis. And Joe Barnes, would you like the very final words? Uh, Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, My um, thing that I'll be looking at in the week ahead is basically the EU has promised an eighth package of sanctions against Moscow. And let's look and see. um, This will tell us very quickly because... they promised to have well, and currently officials and diplomats are having these kind of couple diplomacy meetings to find out what capitals are willing to back what measures. Um, we'll, we'll, I think we'll soon find out what the kind of um, track or path the Italians will take in terms of their willingness to hit Russia with sanctions. And then the other thing that uh, debates that's going to be going on, the EU is going to have to come up with some sort of EU-wide system when it comes to what Francis was talking about. We've got a big bulk of... Um, countries, the Bolts, the Poles, the uh, Finns, uh, all saying that they have shut their borders to, to Russian deserters because they see it as a security risk. The Germans are willing to open up and um, actually some kind of legal eagles, um, some basically EU kind of law boffins have said that what they're doing is basically against the EU's kind of asylum policy and is a breach of EU law. So I think the European Commission is going to have to come out with some sort of clarification very quickly to work out how they actually broached this subject moving forward. And I think um, we could see could see emergency meetings. We could have foreign ministers uh, coming up very soon. But basically what what the kind of the EU has to get itself in in line and has to go through the issues of the Hungarys, the Poles, the 
the Italians, the Germans, the French, they're all on different tracks, or maybe not entirely separate, but say with slight deviations uh, on these on these two issues, and they've got to find some common ground to do it quickly because they've promised the the Ukrainians that they will do it, and one of the things that they the EU has prided itself on it delivers on what it's promised the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians will soon work out that maybe not all is uh, the grass isn't always greener in the European Union if the EU stopped giving uh, delivering on its promises. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.